You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. This morning we're going to read Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 9 through 20, which will end our series in this brief book. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes Before your eyes, says the Lord. This is God's word. Please be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what will heaven be like? Cartoons suggest that it involves sitting on a cloud plucking a harp, wearing a nightgown with little wings on your back and a halo over your head. Islam and Mormonism teach that paradise is a debauched party. Philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, heaven would be boring because, quote, all the interesting people would be missing. Some claim that after death, our souls basically fuse into some collective consciousness, that we lose our individuality and become one with God or the universe. Others, especially at funerals, talk about heaven as being a continuation of life on earth. Lots of fishing and golf, apparently. And I remember about 10 years ago how much money Christian publishers made when they published those books about children who claimed that they had gone to heaven and come back and they wanted to tell their experiences and it all sounded like something straight out of children's literature. But while such speculation abounds, we need to ask, what does God's word, the Bible, say it will be like when the faith of believers finally becomes sight? What will it mean when, by God's grace, we enter his glory? And that's what we will discuss today as we conclude our series in the book of Zephaniah. Today we'll be in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, and we will consider three points. First, glory will mean our purification— Second, glory will mean boundless joy in the presence of God. And third, glory will be the ultimate in restoration 
and vindication. We begin with our first point, which is that glory will mean our purification. Now, today's passage is the conclusion of Zephaniah's prophecy. And if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, you're probably not very familiar with this book. And you should know that what we're going to look at today is very different than the rest of this book. Most of Zephaniah is a vivid, high-definition picture of the wrath of God. Because Zephaniah was writing at a time and place filled with terrible sin. The leaders of Zephaniah's nation were wicked. Chapter 3, verse 3 of this book says, Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. These leaders blasphemed God and they exploited society's most vulnerable people. And these wicked ways were imitated by their followers. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 tell us that the people of Jerusalem claimed a relationship with God, but for most of them, that relationship was in name only. What they really loved were the idols, who promised to fatten their wallets, give them easy lives, and permit them sexual immorality. And because these people didn't really love God, they also didn't love others. They also exploited their neighbors. Chapter 1, verse 9 says, They filled their master's house with violence and fraud. And what does God think about all of this sin? Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. You know, most people in our world today imagine if there is a heaven, pretty much everybody goes there. To wind up in hell, you'd have to be infamous for evil. Someone like Hitler, maybe. But the Bible says actually all of us deserve God's judgment. This judgment of death. And when I say death, don't imagine a peaceful death at an advanced age. Rather, God says this, chapter 1, verse 17. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. We all deserve a horrible traitor's death, the kind of violent torment that characterized the death that Jesus himself died, because that's what our sin deserves. Our sin is high treason in God's universe. In fact, we don't only deserve physical death, we deserve eternal death, experiencing God's wrath forever. And Zephaniah says that wrath is coming. And it will soon intersect history. Chapter 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastening fast. The day of the Lord is that time when history as we know it ends. When God will settle accounts with this world. Bringing the condemnation he has long promised to pour upon the unrepentant. Chapter 3, verse 8 says, My decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. That's what sin deserves. Friends, that is what we deserve. Because we are all sinners. And this is what we will receive if we do not cast ourselves upon the mercy of God that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is God who became a man, who died for our sins and rose victoriously from the dead. And Acts 4.12 says there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Jesus alone is salvation. As Zephaniah describes those who receive this salvation in chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. If we want to be spared from God's coming wrath, we can hide ourselves only by running to God. He is the only safe place when his wrath is unleashed. And that means we have to humble ourselves. We have to confess that we have sinned against him in thought, word, and deed. We must admit that we desperately need his grace and mercy because we cannot save ourselves. We must turn away from our old lives of sin by turning to Jesus, 
because he is truly God and truly man, because he has died for our sins and risen from the dead. And if we come to him, we will find peace with God. We will be made new. We will be empowered to serve and please him. We will be added to the remnant, the new humanity that he is creating that will survive the coming fury. But if we don't humble ourselves before Jesus, we will experience his wrath in its fullest measure. But now after two and a half chapters of reading about God's wrath, in the middle of chapter 3, Zephaniah's book radically changes. What has been a vivid high-definition picture of God's anger becomes a vivid high-definition picture of salvation for God's people. Well, why this sudden change? Because this too is part of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not only the time when God unleashes his wrath, it is also the time when God makes good on his promise to safely bring his people into eternal life. J. Vernon McGee used to say, the day of the Lord can best be understood by thinking about the Jewish way of reckoning time, that each day begins with sunset, with darkness, and it culminates in light. So too it will be with the day of the Lord. Zephaniah 1.15 says, The day of the Lord begins with clouds and thick darkness, but now this gives way to the bright light of glory and salvation for all who take refuge in Jesus. Look at Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. So at that time, on the day of the Lord, not only will judgment fall upon the unrepentant, but God will make things new for his people. He will make things new for his dispersed ones, according to verse 10. This is a reference to exile. Exile was the ultimate penalty the Old Testament law decreed for sinful Israel. Leviticus 18 warned that repeated sin would cause the promised land to vomit Israel out when they made it unclean. And the result being Leviticus 26:38, you shall perish among the nations. And when God brought the judgments upon Jerusalem that he said he would bring in this book in 586 BC, this is what the Jews suffered. Many died and the survivors were all exiled. They either went to Babylon as slaves or to Egypt in poverty. Now, Zephaniah speaks of the Israelites here as being exiled beyond the rivers of Cush. We said last week, Cush is a reference to the ancient kingdom of Nubia, south of Egypt. And we said that to ancient Israel, Cush was like the edge of the world. And so I think Zephaniah's point is that from all the nations, even those as far away as Cush, God will regather his exiled people. That is to say, there will be a second worldwide exodus. Now, when will this take place? Well, after Persia conquered Babylon, the Persians allowed the Jews to return to the Promised Land. Many went, many did not. Those who did return eventually obtained political independence during the time of the Maccabees. But this restoration was temporary. After they rejected Jesus, the Jews were again scattered from their land. Until about 75 years ago, in 1948, when the Promised Land was again occupied by a Jewish nation, the State of Israel. And many Christians today see the modern State of Israel as the fulfillment of these biblical prophecies of national regathering for the Jews. Frankly, I don't think that's correct. Because the promise here is that Israel will be regathered in faith. Zephaniah speaks of them being God's worshipers, bringing offerings. But the current state of Israel is not occupying the land in faith. They have not repented of their rejection of Jesus. In fact, they're one of the most secular countries in the world. If you go on uh, some of their own government websites, they will brag about being one of the most pro-LGBT countries in the world. It is certainly not in keeping with what the scriptures say. So I think obviously the fulfillment of this promise must still be future. But when will it come to pass? Well, Paul prophesies in Romans 11:25, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
And in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what Paul says is, after the last Gentiles come to faith in Christ, at that time, at the end of history, there will be a massive turning of the Jewish people to faith in Jesus. And then these promises of restoration will be fulfilled. Now exactly what this restoration looks like is a matter of intense controversy today. And frankly, we don't have to wade into that controversy here because Zephaniah is not trying to give us a detailed timeline about future events. He is not here trying to explain for us the meaning of the millennium or any other detailed questions we might think up about the end times. Remember what we said in chapter 1. When the Old Testament prophets looked into the future, God let them see the whole. They didn't get to see the parts so clearly. It's like looking at mountains from a distance. What might look like one big mountain when you get closer is actually many distinct peaks and valleys. We saw that was true about Zephaniah's prophecy of judgment. It may also be true about his prophecy of glory. So as we read on here, we need to remember that Zephaniah saw a panoramic view of a glorious future. This is a summary of all that will happen at the end. This is not trying to offer details about what will happen when on a complex end times timeline. But make no mistake, what Zephaniah says here will certainly happen in the future. And we will understand the details when we get there. And someday God will purify the Jews of their unbelief and make good on his promises to restore them. But that's not all we see here because verse 9 tells us something more. God also says he will purify the speech of the peoples, plural. At Babel, God judged humanity by confusing language, fragmenting us into many nations. Now this judgment is reversed as God purifies the speech of the peoples. Now this does not mean that everyone will again speak one language. Revelation 7 has a vision of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and the Lamb. So in the new creation, there will be many languages spoken. And good news, we'll have eternity to learn them all. But when God reverses Babel, the nations will be brought together, not by speaking one language, but speaking with one purpose. They will sin with their tongues no longer. Last week in chapter 2, we saw the nations speak arrogant blasphemy. They mock the people of God. But a day is coming when God will purify human speech, when sinful words will end. When the survivors of God's wrath from every nation in total harmony worship him. But not only will God purify the unbelief of the Jews and purify the speech of the sinful nations. Verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. We've seen Judah and Jerusalem have sinned shamefully. They have sinned much, just as we have sinned much, friends, in thought and word and deed. On the last day, though, God's people will be purified of all shame. Our sins will not result in our condemnation and destruction. Rather, God will release us from his courtroom with the verdict of not guilty. He will purify all of our guilt for everything evil and foolish that we've ever done. Because Ephesians 1.7 says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Because of Jesus' death, all our guilt and shame will be forever expunged. Moreover, we will enter a purified world, continuing in verse 11. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty or arrogant in my holy mountain. Jerusalem was filled with nominalism. The people were misled by arrogant, evil leaders. And friends, that might sound like Christianity in modern America too. Many claiming a relationship with God they don't really have. Being misled by arrogant, selfish, false leaders. And while those who seek God's mercy in Christ will be saved from God's wrath, 
Those who don't, those whose relationship to God remains non-existent or merely nominal, they will receive the terrible judgments described in this book and the rest of the Bible. The unrepentant wicked of this world will be removed. On that day, they will face eternal condemnation. And this is the tragedy of the ages, dear friends. People made in God's image are cast into what Jesus calls the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels in Matthew 25. The ultimate fate of the lost, according to Daniel 12, is shame and everlasting contempt. Today, if you are here and you have never turned to Jesus, you need to know this is where you're headed. And believing friends, all of us know people who are headed for this horrific fate and it breaks our hearts. But we need to understand that this is a necessary part of God's plan. Because God means to totally end sin. And for those who prefer sin to God's mercy, what can be their fate? If not removal from the new world that God is making. This is the only way to preserve the purity and integrity of the new creation and the redeemed people who will inhabit it. So there must be a purification of humanity, a separation of the saved and lost. Verse 12, But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The humble, those who know we can't save ourselves, who cast ourselves upon Christ's mercy, we will be purified. Our pasts will be expunged. Our natures will be remade. We will no longer be corrupted by Adam's sin and guilt. In resurrection bodies, we will no longer struggle against the flesh. The world system will be vanquished. Satan will be defeated. The sins that we battle and so often lose against now will be gone forever. The righteousness that we hunger for will be ours in every way. We will be totally free from the penalty, power, and even presence of sin, we will be made pure like Jesus is pure. And since the only people left will be purified, the result will be everlasting peace, freedom from every danger and threat. Now that was a long point. What should we take from it? We need to understand that not everyone will be saved. Matthew seven thirteen, Jesus says, The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who find it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Many will be lost because they've never turned to Christ. So if that's you today, I beg you, humble yourself and cast yourself upon Jesus' mercy. Because the day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastening fast. And there will be final separation from God and his people for those who do not believe. It is the most horrific fate. I plead with you, turn to Jesus and live. He can make you new. He can take away the shame and guilt of everything you've ever done. Believers also understand that sin is defiling. It is impurity. That's why we need to be purified. Our thoughts are impure. Matthew 15 says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. Our speech is impure. James 3 says, The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Even our deeds are impure. Isaiah 64 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our sins defile, ruin, and condemn us, so we need purification. But there's great news, which is that Jesus cleanses those who trust in him. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yes, in this world and in the body, we fail, friends, and we sin. But a day is coming when that will be true no longer, when purity will be our reality and experience. But as we wait for that day, let us strive for purity now. 
Titus 2 says, as we await Jesus' return, we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We are to war against sin in our thinking and our speaking and our doing. We are to love God and love other people. 1 John 3 tells us one thing we can do in the battle for, for purity. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The more we think about and long for and pray for Jesus' return, we will have a purifying effect happen in our lives because we will be reminded how awful sin is and how glory means holiness. And we will have a longing for the righteousness that will one day be ours. So friends, let us spend more time thinking and talking and praying for Jesus' return so that our affections and our actions will be more closely conformed to the will of God, preparing us to be the pure people that we one day will be. We come now to our second point, which is that glory means boundless joy in God's presence. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always. Now, if joy means happiness, we'll never be able to obey that verse. Because there's times in life we just don't feel happy, right? Joy is more than a fleeting feeling of happiness. Joy is a settled commitment to gladness because we have a confidence in God. That he is real and at work in the, in the world and in our lives. Joy means more than happiness. And in the end, we will have abundant joy. Because we'll see that our trust in God was well placed. He will have worked all things out for our good. But more than that, we will also have boundless happiness and gladness. And why? Look at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. For two and a half chapters, God has been pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem for falsely claiming a relationship with him. But now we see a time is coming when those who don't really belong to God will be taken away. And at that time, God's people will experience no more judgment, no more discipline. Our purification means we won't struggle with sin anymore. We will be what God wants us to be. We will be fully safe from God's wrath. And every awful thing in life will be in the past. On that day, hardship and sorrow will be gone. On that day, the nightmare that is history will end. On that day, Revelation 21 says, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And as the page of history turns from the era of suffering to the era of gladness, we will have unspeakable joy. The kind of joy that makes you erupt in singing. Zephaniah makes a connection here that becomes really important in a minute. If you're really glad, you can't help but sing. On that day, we will sing praises to God. Now, friends, if we're going to sing praises to God like that in eternity, we better start doing it now. I worry for a lot of us, singing in church is dry and obligatory. And maybe we don't sing because I don't like how my voice sounds. Guess what? You're not on American Idol. Okay, God's not judging your talent. He's looking at your heart. Let us joyously and gladly sing to our Redeemer. Because, friends, in the end, if you really know him, your heart will radiate gladness. It will erupt in song to him, confessing how good he has been to us. More than that, look at verse 15. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, our enemies will be gone. So who are our enemies? Well, Judah in Zephaniah's day knew. They had a list, all those countries we saw last week in chapter 2. Maybe today we've got enemies, people who have wronged us, who we fear. If we're hated by people, may it be because they hate us for, for no good cause, not because we've sinned against them. Friend, if we've sinned against somebody, we need to make it right. But the Bible says expect to be hated for no good reason like Jesus was. But you know what? Ephesians 6 tells us an important truth about having enemies. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Yes, there are people that hate God and they will face justice. But our real enemies are those spiritual forces of wickedness that stand behind the evil of this world. And in the end, they will be cleared away. On that day, the petition in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, it will be granted. We will be delivered from Satan and his demonic minions. And this deliverance will not be a short-term thing. Because on that day, something's going to change. God made people to dwell in the garden alongside him. But since the fall, we have been separated from his presence. And yet, on the last day, as sin ends forever, the words of Revelation 21 will be true. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And as God resides in our midst, we will have no reason to fear anymore because he will be our security. Micah predicted this about Jesus in the end. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Jesus will give us security and peace. After the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a political scientist named Francis Fukuyama, and he wrote a book called The End of History and the last man. And he said, well, now history's over. America has won, so now there will be unending peace. He was wrong. But when Jesus dwells with us forever, that will be the end of history. There will be unending peace. Verse 16, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Zephaniah's day of fear was easy. The Assyrian Empire was down the road, and they were powerful and, and dominating the whole region. And Judah lived in fear of not just them, but other countries that surrounded them that wanted to pillage and kill them. And if that wasn't enough, they had unscrupulous leaders who wanted to exploit them and destroy them. There were many reasons for fear. And fear made people's hands weak. That is, they didn't want to serve God. But when Jesus returns, God's people will have fear no longer. On that day, Yahweh our God will dwell with us. As Zephaniah says, he is a mighty one. He is a warrior. And he goes to war to deliver and secure his people to save us to the uttermost. And what is the right response to that? Zephaniah says, God's people will no longer be overpowered by fear. They will instead serve him. This is an important truth about our future, believing friends. The new creation does not mean that we're going to sit on clouds and pluck harps forever. Revelation 22.3 says, The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And that Greek word translated worship means to serve, like in the temple. In eternity, friends, we will work. We will be given duties, and we will faithfully discharge them to God's glory, empowered to do so in a wholeheartedly loving way because he will be with us, securing us and inspiring our love and devotion. But this brings us to the most famous words in this book, verse 17. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Zephaniah has some really vivid pictures of judgment. But I think this is the most vivid picture in this book. Maybe the most astonishing picture of glory in the whole Bible. Verse 14 said, when we are filled with gladness on that last day, our hearts will erupt in song. Here's another picture of joy. Not our joy, but God's joy. God's heart will be filled with gladness. A gladness that leads God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, to erupt in loud singing. And why is God glad like this? What makes God sing? The answer is astonishing. In the end, what makes God sing is you and me. That sounds almost incomprehensible, doesn't it? That God, who is himself the sum total of perfection, should find joy in his creation. That he who is holy, holy, holy should delight in redeemed sinners. But he says it's so. 
Friends, what makes God sing in the end is his people when we are saved at last, united with him. When history is over, when he has done it and brought us safely home as his, that will stir his heart to sing his love over us. You know, I know in this church we often talk about God's anger and God's justice, and we do that because the Bible does it, and because these are truths people often try to avoid today. And I think we need to hear these truths, especially because we don't like to hear them. But although we often discuss God's wrath, I don't want you to have an unbalanced view of God. Because the God we serve is filled with joy and gladness in himself, because he is the sum total of goodness and perfection, but he also has delight in his people. He is so loving and kind, he sent his son to die on the cross to win us, that we might be with him in the end like this, that there might be this great joy. And even more astonishingly, verse 17 says, this love is beyond words. In the Hebrew here, this says quite literally, he remains silent in his love. This is a love that words cannot even do justice to. And that's really astonishing when we think about the power of God's word. God spoke the universe into being. God's word gives life. But God's boundless, indescribable love for us surpasses even his almighty words. This is a scene beyond imagining. And this is the love believers will bask in forever and ever, without end. Amen? What should we take from this? Friends, this joy will soon be ours. Let us press on in endurance. When we think about the most famous descriptions of heaven in the Bible, many of them are from Revelation. And Revelation is written to seven churches that were experiencing hard things, persecution and heresy and sin. And those churches had a need to endure, to persevere and contend for the faith. Those are hard things to do. To help them, God gave them a beautiful picture of salvation. Because the glory that awaits calls us to press on, to win the prize. Hebrews 12 says the same thing. Let us run the race with endurance that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus saw this prospect of joy, and it compelled him to endure. Not a bad day or a mean word. He endured the cross. He bore the wrath of God that should have fallen on us, and he triumphed. And he sits enthroned as a victor. In the same way, we are to endure whatever hardships we face. And we do that best by fixing our eyes on the truth that there is joy set before us. So wherever you're dragging and want to give in today to temptation or hostility or hardship or exhaustion, press on trusting Jesus. Second, this joy will soon be ours, so press on in service. The lengthiest discussion of a resurrection hope is in 1 Corinthians 15. And at the end of that passage, after Paul talks about what resurrection is and why we should believe in it, this is his application. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Friends, let our hands not grow weak because of sin or fear. In the end, when we are in God's presence forever, we will be strong for work. But believing, friends, we have God in our presence now. We don't yet see him face to face, but we are indwelt by his spirit. So let us not be slack about his work. Let not anxiety or fear hold us back from serving. Instead, let us pitch in and use our spiritual gifts to build each other up. Let us evangelize the lost. Let us fight sin and serve Christ because time is running out. Ephesians 5 says, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Let us be busy with the things God has given us to do. Third, let us press on together. We often read Hebrews 10:24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Even in the first century, there were churches whose members did not consistently attend. The author of Hebrews says that's not how it should be. We should meet together to encourage each other to service, to loving God and each other, to doing good works, to endurance. But how does he end the exhortation? 
He says, believers are to do this all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? Well, the day of the Lord that Zephaniah describes. The day of the Lord is near and hastening fast, so we better be involved in each other's lives, encouraging each other because life's hard, and we need to support each other as times get harder. So, friends, let us regularly gather and regularly encourage each other by pointing each other to the great joy that is coming, which should encourage us to service and endurance. We come now to our last point, which is glory will be restoration and vindication. Look at verse 18. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Probably the idea here is that God is making a promise to those Jews who trust him. They were soon going to be taken away as slaves. And in slavery, they could no longer observe the religious holidays the law required of them. And being deprived of the opportunity to worship, they will grieve. And in their grief, they will be disrespected. We read about this in Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Babylonians didn't understand what it meant for a believer to be deprived of worship. They didn't understand what a hardship it was for an exiled Jew to sing a holy song as entertainment for a pagan. These exiled Jews would suffer much reproach in captivity. But God says a time is coming when he will vindicate those who trust in him. They will suffer reproach no longer. Instead, they will be restored. Now, we said last week that did not happen in the lifetimes of these people that this prophecy is written to. It will be fulfilled, though, in the resurrection. Then those Old Testament believers will rise to life again and enjoy a new and better Jerusalem, worshiping God not in a temple, but Revelation 22 says they will see his face and they will worship him because he will vindicate them before all creation for their faith in him. Moreover, God will vindicate his people by avenging the wrongs we've all suffered. Look at verse 19. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. God's people have always been persecuted. We saw last week Israel was persecuted in the Old Testament. Similarly, Jesus' followers have been persecuted since he walked on the earth. We have been mocked and jailed and killed for the gospel. That shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But while we suffer, we have been told by the Lord not to return evil for evil. He says in Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Romans 12 says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And we see now that that vengeance will fall upon those who have mocked and persecuted God's people when Jesus returns. 2 Thessalonians 1 says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There will be terrible justice upon those who hate God's people. But again, the day of the Lord is more than wrath. Again, look at verse 19. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. When Jesus returns, God's people who have suffered disability in this life will be restored to the health they did not enjoy here. Isaiah 35 says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. On the day of the Lord at long last, the blind will see the deaf will hear, the lame will leap, the mute will sing. When Jesus walked the earth the first time, this is how he proved he was the Messiah. He did the works that will characterize the age to come. When he comes the second time, this restoration will be the order of the day. The disabled will become able-bodied, the dead will live again, and those who love God and have suffered reproach, who have been outcast from society, their reputations will be restored as God honors them before all creation. 
The world gives us scorn. On that day, God says we will be honored. Honored by the world and honored even by God himself. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Then each one will receive his commendation from God. More than that, we will be given renown, literally in Hebrew, a name. Remember at Babel, the arrogant people wanted to make a name for themselves? On the last day, God will give his people, who this book so often calls humble, God will give his humble people a name. 1 Peter 5 says, Those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God at the proper time will be exalted. And this book ends with God repeating this promise once more. Verse 20, At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. What a promise this was for the original readers. They were about to endure war, destruction, exile, slavery, and death. But God says in the end, he will bring all his people together. He will bring us in. He will publicly vindicate, glorify, and celebrate his people before the eyes of everyone who has ever lived. And he will restore our fortunes. The Old Testament often makes this promise. Here it will come to pass. God's people who have suffered so much through the ages will now experience something better than the most wondrous experience this world has to offer. Unending peace and security, unending joy, all to the praise of God's glorious grace. Friends, this is an amazing promise for all of us who trust in Christ. He will gather us all together, Old and New Testament saints alike, alive and dead, and we will have reunion with every believer throughout the ages. Those who are famous in the Bible, those we have known and loved in this life, and those we've never heard of. And friends, together we will inherit the greatest of all fortunes. The Mega Millions was worth more than $1 billion this week. If you know Christ, you're going to win a bigger jackpot than that. The new creation will be ours. The restoration of all that was lost in Eden. The face-to-face re- -face relationship with God we were made to enjoy. We will have his approval. We will be glorified, and in that, he will be glorified. And that is how history ends. With the triumph of the Lamb and his people with the beginning of the endless ages to come, of God and humanity joined in this union of eternal gladness. What should we take from this? Friends, we must be patient. James 5, 7 says, Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. When a farmer plants a seed, all he can do is just... Sit back and wait for it to grow, and at the right time the rains come, and up comes the sprout. So it is for us. We wait. We've been waiting for 2,000 years. Jesus is coming. He's always faithful to his word. So hold on and trust him. And be ready whether he comes now, or be ready if we should taste death and he comes far into the future. But be ready, friends. That is the great lesson of the Olivet Discourse, is it not? Jesus again and again in his sermon about the end says, be ready, be on guard, stay awake. And he says, because you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. I recently heard about someone with a terminal illness who said he was going to wait right up till the end of his life to get right with the Lord. Friends, we don't know when our time will come. Jesus might come back right now. Delaying your preparation is folly. He is surely coming. Are you ready for it? Repent and believe in Jesus today. Don't wait. If you've already trusted Christ, redeem the time wisely. Get a return on the investment that he has trusted to you. Strive to obey him. That's what the Olivet Discourse tells us real faith that is marked by readiness looks like. And finally, friends, know that the truth of the return of Christ and the restoration he brings, that means that we don't have to sorrow like the world does. When believing ones die, Paul says, we don't grieve as others do who have no hope. This is 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Death makes us sad, but friends, we shouldn't face it like the world does, because they really don't have any hope, do they? We do. When a believer dies, it's never permanent separation. It's simply, we shall meet again. And when Jesus comes, we will meet them again. We will all meet each other in the air with Jesus. And if the promise of the victory to come is able to relativize even the bitterness of death, then it can relativize the sorrow and pain of every bad experience we face. Friends, life is hard, but in Jesus, victory and joy are coming, and they will soon be ours. So to conclude, Zephaniah says the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, it is near, it is hastening fast. Are you ready? Have you trusted Jesus? If not, you will surely face the devastation described in this book. Believe in Jesus today and live. If you know Jesus, be so encouraged. Because God is always faithful to his word. We've seen that in this book. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We saw last week God was faithful to make good on all his words of judgment in the same way. He will make good on all his promises of salvation to us. Hold on to that truth-believing, friends. We will encounter hard things. It will be easy to give up and sorrow and despair. Instead, let us endure. Let us endure in the battle for holiness. Let us fight for purity because in the end he will purify us. Let us endure when our spirits are low because joy will soon be ours. Let us endure when we feel defeated because he will vindicate us in the most public way in the end. Zephaniah is quite a book. And God used it mightily. He used it to spawn a national revival that lasted for a short time, but these promises of judgment and salvation really awoken the dead hearts of a bunch of people 2,650 years ago. May God use this book in our lives in similar ways. May we consider our lives. Do we really know Jesus? And if we do, may we clutch these promises that point us to Christ. May it inspire us to live for him and love him. May this book inspire seriousness and revival in us, in our church, in our families, and in the lives of those around us.